Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus Podcast. This is the Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Today, we're going to talk about central bank monetary policy, inflation, and of course, rates markets, because that's all that anyone's talking about. So with me today, uh, we had just finished our Global Rates Outlook with Hugh Worthington, who is our Chief European uh, Interest Rate Strategist, and also Angelo Monolatos, who is our uh, Canadian Rate Strategist and helps me out with the United States as well. Gentlemen, thanks very much for being back on Macro Matters. Thanks for, thanks for having us. So... Uh, Angelo, I think I have to start with you. So as we're recording here on the uh, 14th day of July in the year 2022, we have had a 100 basis point interest rate increase by a G7 uh, central bank. And uh, the Bank of Canada yesterday hiked interest rates. You know, what's your take on that? It was, you know, you were early in thinking that they were going to hike 75. They ended up hiking 100. Um, no, no, just your general thoughts on on you know, why they, they felt it was important to go 100 and, you know, where do you think that the Bank of Canada is going to go in the future? Yeah, so, yeah, thank you for having me on as well. So the, I think the rationale there, uh, at least from what Governor Macklin was telling, uh, told us, is that by front-loading now, they think it uh, maybe alleviates the need for higher rates in the future and that uh, the rate was, you know, below their ex-ante you know, neutral uh, nominal level. So if they hike by 100, they get closer to the middle of their, you know, neutral range. Um, and that they they did have some pretty spooky high uh, inflation expectation from their surveys for 2Q, uh, both consumer and business. Uh, there was there was a lot of, uh, you know, hints of, you know, cost of living adjustments. And that's what we're driving uh, wage increases. Wages had have accelerated in Canada quite a bit. So it was mainly, they were below, you know, this neutral range. They wanted to get into the middle of it as quick as possible. But like you said, for the outlook, we think they're, they, they're going to get restrictive uh, and uh, quickly and basically as quickly as possible. So our colleagues at BE think that this isn't going to be the only outsized move. They think that we maybe can expect another one in September, given their, you know, their uh, inflation forecast being quite high in Bloomberg economics. So we get another one in September of this magnitude, or let's say 75. We're at anywhere between three and a quarter and three and a half percent. And then there's more meetings this year. So we could we could definitely see 4% policy rates in 2022 for Canada, uh, something the market isn't pricing uh, or, or above 4% policy rates this year or early next year. Um, so and that could lead to a, a you know a, a steeper inversion like we were seeing right now over 20 basis points inverted on twos tens just a few days ago that wasn't even inverted uh, that curve wasn't even inverted so we have the long end rates being pulled down by global global recessionary fears and pressures of a, you know global growth slowdown but we have the front end underpinned by a, a hawkish central bank with a single mandate and that's you know deeply afraid of inflation becoming entrenched. Yeah, and and obviously uh, yield curve flattening both in the United States and in Canada has been one of our biggest core views all year. Um, at some point, we might be thinking about changing that and turning things around. But 
you know, it is possible that we invert, I don't want to say to unprecedented levels because something like the twos tens curve got to about negative 200 basis points and inverted by 200 basis points back in the 1980s. But certainly in most people's careers, um, we could wind up seeing, um, wind up seeing the most inverted curves ever. And, and and we can contrast what's going on in Canada and the U.S. at some level with what's going on in, in Europe because, you know, it seems like, uh, Hugh, that a lot of Europe is behind the curve, right? Like you have similar, although not exactly the same inflationary issues in um, in in developed Europe, but yet the ECB certainly is not, uh, you know, doesn't seem as aggressive in their um, in their fear about inflation now. And is, is there a reason for that, number one? And number two, wh what does that mean for the markets going forward, especially given, you know, these massive shifts in interest rate differentials, even though, you know, German yields are positive, they're, they're still lagging, say, U.S. and Canadian yields by quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in Europe, it's, it's always a cultural thing, I think, actually. I mean, I, I, if you'd asked me eight or nine months ago if, uh, if I thought the ECB would ever hike rates within my rest of my career in the city, I'd have thought then possibly not. So it's you know the very fact that we're talking about the fact that they are going to hike next week is is, is something. But they are, you know, eight to nine months behind the Bank of England. They're several months behind the Fed. They're certainly not going to be nothing like as aggressive as the Fed and as the Fed. And we'll come to the Bank of England in a minute. Um, but they are going to hike next week. You know, they basically told us they they're going to do 25 basis points. Actually, the market's pricing a little bit more than that. Possibility of around 50% of uh, of a of a 50 basis point hike being priced, but actually, um, pretty much they are expecting now. The markets are expecting a 50 basis point hike to follow in September. So, so they are sort of getting there. But um, I think they equally markets have to some extent a little bit of a suspicion whether the ECB genuinely has the stomach to carry through on this, because part of the problem is that they're not they're not just managing one bond market like they are in Canada and in America and. In the UK, I mean, they're obviously at the same time trying to manage the fallout of when they hike and when they and then stopping QE as well, which has obviously just happened. Um, what that might mean for the, for the for spreads in the countries and for transmission of monetary policy uh, within the Eurozone as well. So they're, they're sort of juggling. They've got a whole load of plates spinning at the same time. So it's not the issue is is not just sort of hiking rates, which they've got to do because inflation is, like I say, it's a problem in Europe as, as and in parts of Europe is a bigger problem than it is in America in the in the Baltic states. Inflation is running up 15, 20 percent. Um, so they, they, they are going to have to tighten. But there's, the trick is tightening without blowing up the, the eurozone spread situation. Now, now I've just turned to, to the gilts as well. Gilts, less of an issue. And in fact, I've got a funny feeling um, the gilt market is going to probably go down the sort of route that we've seen in the Fed and the Bank of Canada with more aggressive hikes. And one of the mechanisms that that might be allowed is that we've got a new uh, Prime Minister being elected at the moment by a new leadership of, of, of the Conservative Party, and effectively most of the leadership candidates are looking at the high tax hikes that came that were being, were being put through in in 2022 to try and sort of you know pay for some of the fallout of COVID and everything else, and they're all pretty much going to reverse it. So they're they're, they're going to chuck a bit more fuel on the fire, and that's possibly going to give a bit more leeway for the Bank of England to be a bit more aggressive. So I wouldn't be surprised if people start to price the bank now at 50 basis points of move going forward. So uh, you know there there is that in the background as well. Let's stay. Let's stay in England and and the United Kingdom for for a couple of minutes here. So two 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 things that I'm questioning there. So one with the change in leadership. So the Bank of England and correct me if I'm wrong, but but there are actually um, a member or two of the governing council that are actually members of the government. Is is that still the case, or is every were those guys kicked off at some point? No, but the Bank of England is now entirely independent. So uh, okay. you know they they, they there is. 
there is no uh, I mean the, the politicians it, it used to be that the chancellor the chancellor used to be a member but, right yeah. oh the the bank the the government used to set bank rates um, prior to um, when Tony Blair came into power, if you remember, this was back in 1997, I think it was, and then Gordon Brown became Chancellor, and he he set, he became, he set the Bank of England up as an independent, but before that, it was effectively, it was something that the government decided, so yeah, it was and, entirely political. And the, the, the point why I'm, I'm asking that question is, is twofold. It, you know, one, obviously, we have more um, independent central banks there, there's been a lot of research that says central banks you know that are independent tend to do a better job doing things like fighting inflation um so you know the bank of england is not as uh, as political of an organization as it used to be same thing with the european central bank which obviously was created to be um to be you know have have membership from across the euro the eurozone question though then turning to europe is you know, back in the day, and I'm going to, you know, date myself, but when you and I started in this industry, Hugh, um, the uh, the Bundesbank was always hyper-focused on, um, hyper-focused on inflation. And, you know, we always said, oh, if there's a hint that inflation is going to start to climb, the Bundesbank is going to hike because of the fears and, and the memory of the Weimar Republic where people's, you know, parents lived through a hyper-inflation period there. So, um, so a lot of policymakers were very keen keyed in on that. You know, now that we're yet another generation and a half or so away from that, you know, why? You know, you, you mentioned about the ECB trying to deal with all of the disparate bond markets. But so, two questions, I guess, is is one: Is there a chance that the Uber fight inflation fighting fears come back? Number one, like like you know, institutional memory maybe of the Bundesbank starts to live up to its old uh, old ways. Number one, and number two, do do you think the fact that the ECB has had a harder time starting to raise interest rates is is that showing one one of the yet one of another failing of not having a unified fiscal policy within the eurozone? So having to contend with all the various fiscal fiscal agents around uh, around Europe. Oh yeah, well I think those, those are two very good things to cover off. Um, so first of all, the, the the idea that the sort of the, the, the German the Bundesbank has, has become less hawkish on inflation. I mean, I really think it's the Bundesbank has been tearing its hair out for the best part of twenty years as to some of the policies of the of the European Central Bank and and certainly the amount of QE that's been going on and, and viewing it as effectively a bailout for what are in some people's views on the Bundesbank Council, uh, insolvent countries. You know, in fact, we've actually had situations where you know, me- members of the Bundesbank who've served on the on the ECB's, ECB's governing council have resigned uh, over, over this sort of sort of thing. So, so that I think the Bundesbank is a, a, acutely aware that its um, its uh, inflation uh, fighting mandate or its 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 profile should never be uh, besmirched in any way. And it's got to remember, actually, uh, the, the Bundesbank were targeting inflation. Back in the 60s and 70s, but almost 20 years before it became popular anywhere else, right? So, so this is this is a, this is a really it's ingrained with it within the institution. But like you say, equally at the same time, we've got the problem that that the the architecture of the of the euro has been created without a common fiscal uh, uh, policy, without a common fiscal treasury, um, and that and the stronger countries, uh, the the likes of the Germanys and that's like the Hanseatic League, the Germanys, the the, the Hollands, the Finlands. Uh, the Austrias and, the, and and so on, that they, they you know they 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 are going to be finding it easier to sell their bonds 
and at better spreads than countries like uh, Italy and Spain, where Italy in particular, where where debt to GDP is you know 150, 160 percent, not far off the levels that forced Greece into bankruptcy, um, and places like France, 115, 120 percent, Spain around the same sort of level, Portugal even higher than that. So you know you you, you have this sort of disparate nature of of the of the countries and the economies within the eurozone, and to some extent, you know, the, the, a lot of people in the, in the Bundesbank and other places think, well, actually, the, the market should set the spreads between there, but then the ECB will say, well. We actually think the market's wrong and we should need some sort of mechanism to, 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 to set spreads where we think that they should be. Now, there's this sort of fundamental disconnect, if you like, between sort of a market view that we might have in the more Anglo-Saxon type economies and, and, and a view that maybe markets don't always do the right thing for you in, in places like, you know, in, in parts of Europe and parts and certainly in parts of the European Central Bank's governing council. So let's talk about both gilts and uh, as well as say German uh, uh, German bonds. If are are those markets also you know six to eight months behind what's going on in Canada and the United States, where um, you know we we have inverted the yield curves here uh, twos tens twos tens is not yet inverted in the UK, although it might be heading that way given that the 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 um, the curve now is what 15 basis points or so in, in twos tens, and then in in uh, Europe it's uh, significantly steeper, about 60 odd basis points. You know, when do those end up, uh, you know, inverting at some point? And and maybe in Europe, maybe they don't. If if the ECB ends up hiking very slowly, right? Yeah. So I think I think that's the well. I I think the the UK is is not not as far as um, you know six to eight months behind. The likes of the the Fed, but it's it's probably a few months behind. I, th- I think when 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 we actually do get those that fourth August meeting out of the way, if we do get a fifty base, we I think we will get a fifty base point hike, and we'll probably get some sort of communication that that's going to be the pace going forward for the next uh, few meetings. Possibly, you know, you are going to get a situation where where UK bank rate is is going to be running up pretty pretty sharply. I mean, don't forget we actually did see the very first hike in the G7 countries in in the UK back in in September. It was a bit of a baby step at first, but they they, they did start. Um, but I think, yeah, we, we will end up getting, a, you know, curves flattening as, as we sort of approach the peak of, the, of the, the rate hiking cycle towards the end of the year, maybe. In Europe, like I say, it's I think the markets are always going to be somewhat sceptical that the ECB has really got the stomach to carry through what might be needed. And as a result, there may well be the situation where, where you don't get the same level of, of flattening. You will get flattening, but it may not invert. I think, you know, I suspect it will invert uh, in, in gilts. It may not invert in 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 Europe as where. So in um, you know maybe I'll talk a little bit about the U.S. because as we record just yesterday, uh, besides the Bank of Canada meeting being one of the the big headlines that came out yesterday, we also had the CPI report uh, hitting 9.1 percent um, on a uh, year-on-year basis for uh, headline CPI and and. You know, obviously better than or higher, I should say, than expected, not necessarily better, right? Probably worse in, in a way, but um, but higher than expected. And importantly, and, and this is this is what what Angelo and I focused on. When you look at a lot of the details, it seems like the trends are not going to abate in places like core services, X shelter, for example, those um, that that's been rising very significantly. And that tends to be a much stickier and, and services in aggregate. Um, but but core services, excluding uh, excluding housing is very important because that's very 
driven by wages. It's driven by expectations. Um, and it seems like uh, that could be much stickier. And with uh, inflation in that sector, you know, upwards, um, you know, continuing to climb, even if we get a very significant pullback in, in oil prices, um, you, we wind up seeing a um, can wind up seeing more persistent inflation at much lower levels than nine percent potentially, but but you know this time next year, uh, I, I think the thing we have to be asking ourselves is will inflation go down toward levels that the market's pricing? So when we look at implied one year one year inflation forwards um, uh, as priced by the uh, by the swaps market. Um, you wind up seeing inflation expectations a year from now are supposed to be for the following year to be around two and a half percent. And I, I suspect that that might be a little bit too optimistic um, and we can wind up having having, you know, realize inflation rates significantly higher than that, although maybe trending the right way. Um, but in that environment, I, I can't see the Federal Reserve really stopping at three percent or, or even three and a quarter. Um, so I do think that there's the, a real risk now that the Federal Reserve hikes to four percent or maybe even above four percent because at some level, Central banks, and maybe we can talk about this, and and maybe you guys disagree with me, but I think at some point uh, the the Federal Reserve will have to get the real funds rate basically to zero, um, which means that they that as inflation falls, at some point the Fed is still going to have to, and I think many central banks will have to increase interest rates so to at least get the policy rate you know very close to, if not exactly on top of what the uh, underlying inflation trend is. Um, and, and you know, you know, there's obviously risks to that because if if inflation's trending down quickly, you can wind up having very positive real rates for a while. But but the risk here for I think central banks globally is the is the lack of potential credibility and the fact that we're now seeing in the vernacular just within the you know common press and just within many in the household sector that they're worried that inflation is going to become entrenched. So in some, in some cases, um, I think that that's probably the you know still a massive concern for a lot of central banks. And yeah. Um. And and if that's the case, then you know, do the central banks have the wherewithal to actually do that? To actually hike to those levels? And and Hugh, what you just said is maybe the ECB doesn't yet. Um. But maybe the yes, Bank of yeah. England and the Bank of Canada and, and the Fed might. So is yeah. is that is that well. Yeah, I think it's a very good point, actually. I mean, and actually, the one point you make there as well is that okay, people are talking about the credibility, but it's actually not just households and the press and the rest of the people. It was actually the Bank for International Settlements in their annual economic outlook, just I think it was two weeks ago, actually spelt that out themselves and and that you know and said that the policymakers are well aware of of, of this issue now, and they, they they've gone from sort of being possibly a bit complacent, and now they are aware that their credibility is on the line, that they have to act, and and they need they know what they need to do. So that's that that lesson is certainly you know pretty loud and clear at the Fed, but there therein lies another problem actually. So if, if the Fed, like you say, it goes on this even more aggressive stance, there's a situation where you know at the moment the euro is playing with parity against the dollar. If if uh, if they do try and row back at all or, or, or show signs that they're not going to be you know uh, as aggressive in terms of, of hiking there's a there's a decent chance that that parity could break and then you could be looking at the euro trading at 90 or 85 cents to the dollar you know and, and at the same time whilst inflation starts to improve because energy prices in particular i suppose and price in dollars uh, are, is improving in that outlook in, in, in america 
and actually you could have a second round of, of inflation effects being imported into Europe. So it may well be that we actually have a situation where, where and, and actually you are starting to see now, there's been some comments out of the ECB this week uh, from the Bank of France government. It's, it's Bastille Day today in France. So he's obviously maybe not looking at it right now. Um, but he actually you know, he commented himself that the ECB is cognizant of what exchange rates mean and uh, and that they, they need to keep an eye on that. So I, I do think that, that uh, you know, if, you know, we, if you like to use the uh, the vernacular of the, of the time, you know, we're all effectively caught in the Fed's jet wash. Um, and uh, and some of us are in a flat spin and heading towards the mountains. So so it's, uh, you know, it, we, we can't really avoid that. And and yeah, I think that the, the probably the, the the place which is possibly most in denial is, is, is the ECB, but maybe they're not as much in denial as they used to be. So something that that a lot of central banks are talking about, and Angelo mentioned this about the Bank of Canada, about front-loading hikes, and certainly that's something that James Bullard and a, and a number of members of the Federal Open Market Committee at the Fed have discussed is this, uh, this concept of front-loading hikes, so therefore we can do everything early and we won't have to go as far as you know we might have if we went went slowly um I, i'm not sure that that that's going to work um you know certainly it certainly it might help but i still don't see um again like uh, until we get to a, a kind of a neutral absolutely neutral uh real funds rate i don't know if um if realistically they can gain back that credibility at least um based on on uh, you know the data that that's been incoming um Going back to Angelo, Angelo, do, do you ha have a sense of, you know, or what's just your opinion? I mean, we, we don't know, right? This has really never been tried exactly. Um, but what, what's your opinion as to whether or not this front-loading concept is going to actually be successful or um, um, or not? So I think, I think they have no other choice. Um, and I think front-loading is interesting because, yes, it implies that like they're saying, well, we'll do more now to do less later, but how much do you need to do now, right? So if you're if you're so far behind, not behind the curve, but if you're so far behind in inflation, spot inflation and realized inflation is so high, so you, you kind of need to hike into your ex-ante restrictive levels. So for, you know, the Fed, that's above two and a half, for the Bank of Canada, that's above two and a half, three percent. So you kind of get need to get there as quick as possible. So that's the argument for front loading. You've seen some success with front loading in the 90s, like you mentioned, James Bullard. Uh, so you've seen success in the 90s uh, with that. But the inflation uh, situation was different. Uh, we have there's uh, more of an inflation impulse now. Um, so I think I think I think uh, Chair Powell was really clear in, in mid-May and when he, when he basically said that, you know, it's not a time to look at uh, tremendously nuanced uh, ways of inflation. And that's why the market uh, and central banks are just so uh, reactive to what's going on in headline, you know, CPI and the and the CPI pressures that uh, we've been seeing both in the U.S. and Canada. But I do think, you know, I think the underlying trends in Canada, so the Bank of Canada will get to a restrictive area, but at some point these hikes are actually have pretty, pretty meaningful impact. I mean, they're already having a meaningful impact in housing, but they're going to have a, a larger impact. So the country is highly indebted, uh, if you compare it to the U.S. Uh, such a, a, a large part of the uh, country has, you know, is uh, everybody has like a five-year mortgage. A large part of the country had gone into the variable rate uh, mortgage space. There was a variable rate mortgage boom. A lot of variable rate mortgages, your payment doesn't actually increase, so you'll only have to deal with a mortgage extension. But that's not the case with every bank. So there are people whose payments will and are increasing with these outsized hikes. So this will sting 
the chances for a soft landing are are are, are very slim, uh, both in the U.S. and Canada, as you have been saying for a long time now. Uh, so eventually, you know, these rate hikes will will bite. Um, but I think the front loading concept does have some validity, and there are a cycle a cycle where it did kind of work. But I think I think the inflationary impulse might be different now, and I think the amount that that indebtedness story uh, will come come to bite uh, rather quickly, especially in Canada. If we go back to the 1970s and you look at what happened during the uh, the, the Federal Reserve um, before Volcker, um, the Fed hiked interest rates five uh, percent over the course of two years. Um, and then they hiked within just six months around 4%. Um, now, granted, interest rates were significantly higher then. Like we started around 4.5% in terms of the Fed funds rate, and then they increased the Fed funds rate to around 10% by, um, by, by 1979. And then after that, you know, inflation continued to tick significantly higher. You had the Iran hostage crisis. There was a lot of different geopolitical things going on. You had the second, uh, um, the second oil shock. You know, we were all waiting in gas lines. Those of us who were awake or were alive back then, like myself, I was probably sleeping in the back of the car. And on occasion, uh, I do remember that we were playing with weebles and some other toys in the back of my parents, uh, um, uh, my parents' station wagon, but. The, the the fact is back then, just to give some context, the U.S. twos tens curve right now is inverted by 25 basis points. The curve got to as inverted as negative as as inverted as 200 basis points back in um, in, in early 1980. Um, now, will we get to those kinds of levels? It's it's not outside the realm of possibility, but my view is we won't get quite there. But negative 40 basis points is an interesting level. Um, uh, maybe negative 50. I know some folks Priya Mishra over at uh, TD Securities thinks that maybe we'll get to negative 50, and and that's certainly um, certainly a realistic possibility, and and maybe even a little more. Um, you know, in an environment where central banks are front loading and having to hike maybe more than than the market's currently pricing, causing us to have that hard landing that Angelo just mentioned, we could wind up seeing a very significant flattening of the curve. It would not surprise me at all if the two-year yield got up toward 4% and 10-year yields hovered at 325, just in anticipation of a recession sometime in, in the not-too-distant future and uh, and a, the Fed cutting uh, interest rates pretty strongly at some point. Um, and, and that's probably the similar path that that most other central banks will probably take, but maybe going up to different levels. Um, with that, Hugh, I don't know if you have any uh, final thoughts here as we uh, wind down our, our podcast this week. Well, just very quickly, I suppose, it, it's interesting you mentioned the 70s, and actually now people are talking about risk for stagflation in Europe. But uh, I think actually the experience in the 70s was pretty much the, the people that did best were the people, uh, countries that um, kept their exchange rate strong. And it may well be that, that you know you keep your exchange rate high. It means you can you control the inflation better than than in, in other places. Um, and it, it may be more, it's almost like a, a proxy currency war that, that we may end uh, uh, fighting between us. So so then th- th- that goes to your your point about the ECB maybe not being as aggressive as as the U.S. because we certainly you know we now are under parity as as I speak right now point nine nine. Six yeah. nine for um, for euro uh, euro dollar. Um, you know, if the ECB doesn't start to hike, that's just going to get worse, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I, you know what, I hadn't even noticed that. So, yeah, it's, it's dipped significantly below. The, it's managed to bounce off parity each time now. But you know, you could you're, you're in sort of the areas now. We supposed to get gap 
at risk, then we suddenly we could step down to 90, 0.95 or point. Yeah, and, and and then that becomes an issue, and then you start you know thinking, well, you know, we need to do something more aggressively, and uh, I, I think that possibly is the uh, <laughs> is the game that we might end up playing. Uh, between us uh, going yeah. forward in the next few months. So. Yeah, and the loonie's been doing okay, Angelo, right? Like the, the loonie actually is probably the, the, the strongest currency in general right now vis-a-vis um, you know, most other uh, major currencies. Yeah, yeah, exa- yeah exactly. So uh, the, other, the other currencies haven't kept up with the US dollar. The loonie hasn't uh, quite underperformed as much as those uh, versus the dollar, but uh, in terms of the G10 in general, it's it's been an outperformer. Yep. Well, with that, gentlemen, thanks very much for coming back on the Fick Focus podcast. If you have an idea for a uh, a topic you'd like us to hit or any guests you'd like us to have on the show, we do have guests from outside of Bloomberg, but also folks from inside Bloomberg. Uh, just as a couple of highlights, we did have uh, this crew plus uh, Stephen Chu from our uh, Asia Rates team uh, did a webinar on our mid-year outlook, so you can get a lot more detail on what you just heard today from the replay of that webinar that we did on Tuesday the 12th of uh, of July and also uh, take a look at uh, a previous episode of the Fick Focus podcast uh, I recorded with Damian Sassauer just yesterday on the 13th of July talking about our global asset allocation for fixed income. We look at fixed income returns across uh, the entire global fixed income spectrum. And with that, until next time, be well. <laughs>